Hello, welcome to the May edition 2021 of the MDS Foundation Professional Report Podcast. Today we are opening episode number three. Here today, I am glad to introduce Dr. Galia Stemmer. Galia is the, the chief of the MDS uh, Center in the Haemek Medical Center, Afula, in the north of Israel, and she is also the secretary of the Israeli MDS Working Group. Hello, Galia. Good to have you with us. Hello, Moshe. Today, we will cover several topics. We will start with this discussion on the addition of venetoclax to hypomethylating agents in the treatment of myeloid neoplasms, especially high-risk myelodysplastic syndromes. We will then report on an interesting study testing the efficacy and safety of imetelstat, a new telomerase inhibitor, in the treatment of the anemia in lower-risk MDS following failure of erythroid-stimulating agents. We will then review an interesting attempt to approach and improve the response to erythropoietin or restore the response with addition of lenalidomide. And finally, we will return to a hot topic targeting the TP53 mutation by summarizing an important trial that has been recently published. And now, without further introductions, let's move on to the first paper. This paper is entitled Safety and Efficacy, Clinical Experience of Venetoclax in Combination with Hypomethylating Agents in Both Newly Diagnosed and Relapsed Refractory Advanced Myeloid Malignancies. The paper was published recently in the journal Blood Advances, the young brother of the blood journal, and this is a retrospective study of the team from New York Mount Sinai, led by Louis Silverman, and the first author is Jonathan Feld. Now, Dr. Stemmer, as a background to this study, we are focusing here on patients with high-risk myelodysplastic syndromes. Can you summarize for us how do we approach patients with high-risk MDS in 2021? Still, the backbone of the treatment is hypomethylating agent, whether it's 5-azacytidine uh, or the citabine. We know that this treatment is needs to be improved because patients respond in about 50% for about two years. So there is still a way to go. So if I understand you well, you mean that hypomethylating agents remain the backbone, but one of the approaches to improve is to add on another agent. So venetoclax is the only one. Are there others? There are several agents that are uh, studied nowadays. Uh, venetoclax, which is a BCL2 inhibitor, was uh, first uh, presented to the hematological world or community uh, in the CLL disease. In MDS, it uh, has a synergistic effect when added uh, to hypomethylating agent. But there what's the basis of using venetoclax? It's absolutely, MDS is a different disease from CLL. What's the biological basis to use venetoclax in MDS as well? We know now that the myeloid cells contain the BCL2 enzyme, and actually they are depending on its activity to survive. 
when we introduce venetoclax by and adding the hypomethylating agent, we cause a synergistic effect and we achieve complete remission in more percentage. So now we are talking about the combination of hypomethylating agent and venetoclax in patients with high-risk MDS and probably other myeloid malignancy, but we are focusing on MDS only. And tell us about that report coming from Mount Sinai. Okay, although in this report there was a minority of patients with MDS, still the results were quite impressive. About uh, 50% or even more of the patient with high-risk and very high-risk MDS, according to IPSSR, achieved complete remission. But there was a cost for it. And what was the cost? Tell me about the adverse effects of the combination of azacitidine or other hypomethylating agents with venetoclax. Well, the main cost was uh, neutropenia and febrile neutropenia. And of course, many of the patients, about 50% of them, became transfusion dependent. And these are patients who were not transfusion dependent in the beginning of the trial. That's right. So what's the net effect? I mean, we are talking about combination, relatively high response rate. We are talking about 40-50% response rate in patients who were high risk to begin with. But the cost, and we are not talking about money, we are talking about side effects, was pretty substantial. Now, what about the duration of response? The duration of response was for about a year or maybe less for 10 months. In this particular study, they did some or they, this is a retrospective study, but they also did molecular analysis and they realized who are the patients that could respond and others whose response could be expected to be low. Can you elaborate and describe these two types of mutation profile? The investigator noticed that patients who harbored mutations like TET2, IDH1, and IDH2 were more responsive to the combination of venetoclax and hypomethylating agent as opposed to patients who harbored mutations like FLT3 and RAS mutations. This may be one of the key uh, points to choose the treatment for the each for the patient uh, separately. So you think that it makes sense in the future to test the mutation profile and those with TET2 and IDH1 and 2 may respond so they should receive enetoclax and others with RAS, for example, may not and we should probably choose another agent? This makes sense to you in the future? I think that this will be the inevitable step to perform molecular profiling and cytogenetic profiling for each patient and tailored him the exact medicine. Now, Galia, uh, this is not the first report combining venetoclax and hypomethylene agent. We have seen over the last three, four years, several other trials and papers, including the papers from uh, Courtney DiNardo from MD Anderson, how do you see venetoclax today 
as an add-on to hypomethylating agent in these patients with high-risk MDS? And how do you see it compared with other agents that are all under investigation, such as pefonedistat, rigocertib, and others? Well, this is a very potentive combination. I think in the next years or maybe months, this will be one of the major treatment a first line for high-risk MDS patients, although we need still need to uh, wait for uh, results in this uh, population of high-risk MDS patients. There is still room or place for other uh, treatments. And as I said before, I think that the future, that in the future, each patient will be tailored its a specific medication according to the disease Profiling. So as a summary of this paper, we can say, I believe, that uh, the combination venetoclax and hypomethylating agents indeed is a good potential and the combination is probably better than hypomethylating agent alone. Last quick question. Would you say that venetoclax is the new standard in 2021 as a part of the combination or am I exaggerating and it is still too early? I think it's a bit too early, uh, but I think with some more information, this combination will be one of the major treatments in first-line high-risk MDS. We need also to adjust the combination, the protocol treatment, in order to eliminate these um, uh, side effects of neutropenia. Thank you, Galia. And now let's move on to the second report. So now uh, we'll continue to review the second paper, Imetalstat for low-risk MDS, second line, by David Stinsma and his uh, colleagues. The paper was published in uh, JCO, Journal Clinical of Oncology, in January this year. And uh, the title is a metal stat achieves meaningful and durable transfusion independence in high transfusion burden patient with low risk myelodysplastic syndrome in a phase two study. Well, Professor Mittelman, I would like to, to explain what is the background and how do we approach anemia in low risk MDS? Well, we know that low risk MDS patients suffer mainly from anemia. The first-line treatment is erythropoietin, or as we prefer to call it today, erythroid-stimulating agents, plus red blood cell transfusions as needed. However, fortunately or unfortunately, depends how you look at it, the response rate is around 50%, and most patients, even if they respond, they lose their response in about a couple of years. So that means that half of the patients need something else to begin with, and the others need additional agent or additional treatment after failure of erythroid-stimulating agents. Then there are several ways how we can approach it. There are several agents. One of them has already been approved. This is the Luspatercept. But there are several other agents under investigation. One of the agents is indeed Imetelstat, which is the basis for this report. So what is Imetelstat and what uh, did they do in this uh, paper? Imetelstat is the first agent in the class of telomerase inhibitors. And first I would like to mention that telomerase is an enzyme 
which is active in several diseases, in several malignancies, including MDS. Telomerase has been found to be highly expressed and active in some patients with MDS. And here we are trying to target the telomerase by using an inhibitor, telomerase inhibitor, in this particular case, the imetilstat. So, can you elaborate on this uh, study? What is the main result? Yes, this study was a phase two study. In fact, this is a part of a larger study, phase two, phase three, but this report summarizes the results of phase two. It was also presented in the last ASH. In this report, the authors summarized the results with 57 patients, all with low-risk patients, low-risk MDS, non-DEL5Q, and these patients received hypomethylating, they were naive to hypomethylating agents, they were naive to lenalidomide, and they were all resistant to erythropoietin or erythroid-stimulating agents. The patients received imetilstat as a monotherapy, and the endpoint, the primary endpoint in this study was becoming transfusion-free for at least eight weeks. There were other uh, endpoints such as becoming transfusion-free for 24 weeks or more. Uh, they also tested the duration of the response as well as other parameters related to the disease such as cytogenetic and other maybe if we have time we can discuss it as well. But the study mainly was the attempt to achieve clinical erythroid response in patients who were resistant to erythropoietin. And was the goal achieved? Was the difference significant? Yes, yes. It will be sufficient to mention that basically the primary endpoint, achieving transfusion independence for at least eight weeks, was achieved in about 37%, so almost 40%. And if they took a subset of the patients, it was even 42%. So we are talking about around 40% response in patients who were pretty resistant to first-line treatment, which is fairly good. I would like also to mention that they did also mutational analysis, and this mutational analysis indeed showed, very interesting, that the size of the malignant clone is decreasing. So it may indicate that by using telomerase inhibitor, we also changing the natural course of the disease, which probably is an important finding for future purposes as well. So is everything good or are there any adverse effects? Well, before that, I would also like to mention that the response was pretty durable, relatively long. We are talking about 65 weeks of median duration of response, which is fairly good, but there is no free meals, as we say. Yes, there are several adverse effects. The main adverse effects, not surprising, are the cytopenias that are related to using imetilstat, and obviously infections as well as other side effects related to the cytopenia is something that one has to bear in mind. But nevertheless, I think we can summarize by saying that, yes, we have another agent, which is probably not the first line, but definitely can be considered in the future for patients who stop responding 
to erythropoietin or do not respond from the beginning. And you mentioned several other agents like Lospatosep or Roxodostat. So how can we decide which agent uh, to give each uh, patient? I think it's a very important point because I think we have to be careful enough, cautious enough, and we have to separate between evidence-based and agents that are still under investigation. Well, it's clear that uh, we can start with red blood cell transfusions in patients who are anemic and become symptomatic. Obviously, this is not a great issue, but we can still do it even in 2021. Red blood cell transfusions is still a very relevant and, by the way, the most commonly used way. But... The first-line agent still is erythroid-stimulating agents or erythropoietin, and I guess that it will stay the first line for many years. Then there is the Luspatercept, the Activin analog, which has been recently approved in Europe, in the United States, in our country as well, in many other countries. And it is probably the second line today. I'm still cautious by saying second line, but I think it is becoming in most centers as the second line. Maybe in some of them, especially for patients with sideroblastic anemia, as Pierre Fenou and colleagues showed in the New England Journal of Medicine, January 2020, it may become even the first line in some patients with sideroblastic anemia. By the way, there is a trial now comparing Luspatercept, I think commands is the name, comparing Luspatercept to erythroid-stimulating agents as first line. And then there is a list of several very interesting and potential agents in which imetelstat is definitely one of them. You mentioned the roxodostat, the HIF inhibitor. There are others as well. And I think that we will see in the next couple of years or in the next three, four years, we will see several interesting clinical trials testing the efficacy and the safety of these agents. And I presume that one of them or more will really make it to the market. Now, how the future is going to look like, you know, I can just predict and speculate. But my personal speculation, if I may, would be that in the future, if there is no question, of course, there will be one of two things. Either we will use a cocktail of agents or we will be better in personalized medicine and we will find the subset of patients who respond to what and every patient will receive the agents to which he is more sensitive and more likely to respond. We will stay around the low-risk patient area and we'll go straight to the third paper. Uh, which is titled lenalidomide, epoetin-alpha versus lenalidomide monotherapy in myelodysplastic syndrome, refractory to recombinant erythropoietin. This paper was published in uh, JCO this uh, January 2021 by uh, Alan List and colleagues. And again, uh, Professor Mittelmein, uh, you mentioned the problem of uh, low-risk patient MDS uh, who are suffering from anemia. So uh, why adding lenalidomide and what is this special agent? Well, I have to say that this is very interesting. Yes, we have already discussed today and in other sessions that erythroid-stimulating agents or erythropoietin 
still remains and probably will remain for the next few years as the backbone and first-line treatment for symptomatic anemic patients with lower-risk MDS. However, as we mentioned, as we're repeating, the response rate is only 50%, and even those who respond lose the response in about two years or maybe even less. So we got to find something better or at least something else, something in addition to erythropoietin. And here, the team led by Alan List from Tampa, Florida, used several observations. These observations were both in vitro in the lab as well as initial clinical observations, which showed that lenalidomide may improve erythropoietin receptor activity and erythropoiesis. Now, this is also the time to mention that lenalidomide has been shown to be very effective in patients with low-risk MDS and the cytogenetic abnormality DEL5Q. As we, as well as others, have shown that the response rate of lenalidomide to anemia in patients with DEL5Q is around 50-60%. But another, several other trials, such as the trial published by Valeria Santini and colleagues in JCO in uh, 2016, I believe, we in this particular paper, as well as others, showed that some patients, even without having DEL5Q, they still respond to lenalidomide, although the response rate is significantly smaller, something such as 26-27%, but still they respond. So it must be another mechanism of action in which lenalidomide improves erythropoiesis. And I'm coming back to Alan List paper. They were based on their observation and several one or two small clinical studies, as well as the in vitro studies showing that lenalidomide improves erythropoiesis. I should say, Galia, in a personal comment, that I myself also, as a off-label use, uh, tried in two or three patients who responded to erythropoietin, but then lost the response. I added lenalidomide, and surprisingly, without understanding the mechanism, it worked. So here, coming back to the report, this is a phase three trial by this group, and they took patients who responded to EPO but lost the response, and they added lenalidomide in an attempt to restore the response to uh, erythropoietin and improve erythropoiesis. So what are the main points of this trial and what are the main results that they published? This was a phase three trial and uh, totally about almost 200 patients, I think 125 patients were evaluable, almost 200 patients and the patients were assigned one-to-one to receive either lenalidomide as an alternative after failure of EPO or the other half, which was the study group, they remained on EPO and they added lenalidomide. And the results were pretty interesting and I would say uh, really uh, Im- important points. They uh, defined what they called major erythroid response, which I'm not going into the details, but they showed that the major erythroid response 
was much better after four cycles of treatment, about 30%, in fact, 28% for the combined group, erythropoietin lenalidomide, as opposed to only 11% in the lenalidomide-only group, which was significant uh, statistically. And if they waited longer enough, after 16 weeks of treatment, we are coming back to the magic numbers of 40-50% response rate in patients who are basically as second line they receive the treatment. So here we are talking about 39% compared with 15%. So yes, the bottom line is that the combination erythropoietin and lenalidomide not only better than lenalidomide alone, but also is durable and allows patients who responded to EPO, lost their response to regain their response and to improve their erythropoiesis and become transfusion-free. So if you have a patient with a non-DELQ5, would you start the treatment with the erythropoietin alone or will you decide to give him uh, in the first line lenalidomide plus erythropoietin. Oh, Galia, this is really a very tough question in, on which we can debate now for hours. I think I can say that for patients with lower-risk MDS, non-DEL5Q, who are symptomatic with their anemia, one can start either with lenalidomide as first line or with erythropoietin. I know it might be different from country to country. In our country, we prefer to start with erythropoietin, although those physicians who start with lenalidomide are probably right as well. But after failure of erythropoietin, what then? Well, I think this study really shows us that you can either give lenalidomide by itself, but if you can give lenalidomide in addition to EPO, probably the chances to respond are better. Obviously, I'm not getting now to approval, regulatory issues, and cost issues, but probably this study shows us that the combination erythropoietin and lenalidomide is probably better than lenalidomide itself. I would also like to refer you to a paper, important paper, about three, four years ago, a retrospective analysis of the French group led by Pierre Fenou, the GFM group, which showed basically that once patients fail on erythropoietin, all the other possibilities are about the same with a median survival of four years. So maybe this paper by Alan List and colleagues shows us that the combination EPOLEN might be better for the future, something to consider. Now, let's move on to the fourth and the final topic of today, entitled Eprenetapopt plus azacitidine in TP53 mutated myelodysplastic syndromes and acute myeloid leukemia, a phase two study by the group Francophone Demyelodysplasie, the GFM, this paper was published a few weeks ago in the Journal of Clinical Oncology by the GFM French MDS group led by Pierre Fenou, and the first author is uh, Thomas Clouseau. Dr. Stemmer, can you describe for us, before we get into the details of this particular report, tell us what is the P53, this bad guy 
of cancers in general and myelodysplastic syndromes in particular? Well, normally, TP53 is a propoptotic protein that functions in the cell cycle and the interrupts and cell proliferation. When it's mutated, its function is disrupted and the cells have proliferation advantage. So uh, we have now an agent which is called Eprenetapopt. I have difficulties in pronouncing it, and I prefer the previous old term when it was developed, which is called APR243. I think it's easier to say APR. So let's say APR. So tell us, what is this APR? What does it do? What is the mechanism of action and how we can apply it in clinical practice? The agent APR246 stabilizes the mutated TP53 thermodynamically and restores its function, like shifting it towards the wild-type protein. And that's the protein regains its mechanistic uh, function in the cell cycle. And the idea was to uh, restore the function of this uh, protein and to control the proliferation of the bad cells, as we call them. So if I summarize so far, TP53 is a bad mutation in which tumor suppressor gene is suppressed and the APR is somewhat activator of the P53, which might improve the prognosis in cancers in general, but here we are focusing on MDS. So what is the this trial, the phase two trial of the French group? Can you tell us about the trial? Yes. In this trial, patients were divided to two groups. Uh, again, the backbone of the treatment was hypomethylating agent. So we are, tri- we are talking about patients with high-risk MDS, yes. right? Yes. And um, is it in addition to hypomethylating or as a monotherapy? No, the drug was uh, added to hypomethylating agent, uh, Vidiza versus 5-Azacitizin uh, or Dicitabine. And uh, patients were followed uh, by achieving a complete remission or even partial remission. And also, uh, very interesting findings, uh, the patient who achieved complete remission were examined for the uh, molecular uh, burden of the TP53. And did it affect the, molecu- the, the clone also? Yes. The drug, the APR246, affect the variant allelic burden. And the patient, there was a correlation between patient who achieved CR and uh, the molecular burden uh, of these patients. So in summary, we are talking about response rate of about 60%. And we are also talking about reduction of the malignant clone. Pretty impressive results. But... The main concern, of What's course... What's the cost? The cost are, first of all, cytopenias. And a non-hematological concern is neurologic symptoms, but they were quite manageable by reducing or interrupting the drug. The main patients that were uh, at risk were older patients and patients with uh, elevated uh, GFR. And I think we should also uh, keep in mind that basically we are talking about patients who are, have very aggressive disease to begin with. So it might be a reasonable cost to pay 
for achieving response. Yeah, we don't have uh, many good solutions for uh, this subset of patients, right. and this is uh, one of the uh, important uh, drugs or options that we need to consider. Now, what about the duration of response? Well, the duration of response were for uh, several months, um, but still, um, because we, we're uh, talking about uh, a subset of patients with uh, overall survival of like half, uh, six months or even less, the added value was about uh, two months. So basically, we are still, one has to be Uh, modest by saying that we are still talking about survival of a year or maybe less, so still some way to go, but yes, some progress. Yes. Now, Galia, uh, I believe that this is probably the second at least uh, such clinical trials, and a few months ago, we also, also presented in ASH and published, I believe, also in JCO, paper led by American group, uh, the first author was David Salman. Can you summarize how do you see these two papers? And please, how do you see the future with such agents such as APR? Well, these papers are quite uh, similar. Uh, the group from um, led by David Salman and uh, this uh, the GFM group, the result was quite similar. There were slight uh, differences in this paper as uh, enrolled patient which uh, um, underwent uh, allogeneic bone marrow transplant and patient who were uh, AML with high percentage of blast. The one of the important things in this paper is that the results were quite reproducible. And the other thing is that uh, the results are uh, promising. But as you said, uh, we need to take some caution and we still need to wait for phase three trial to give us the more um, more fine results. So I think we can summarize that, yes, uh in in another step towards better medicine, towards better personalized medicine, we can attack another target, the P53, which has been considered for many years as really the bad guy. And now we have at least the first agent, probably we'll have other agents as well that attack the P53 and improve the response rate. So this is really something to look forward for the future. And, and even if we talk about a few months it's still more months that we had before thank you Galia and I think this is a good time to conclude this episode number three of the MDS foundation professional report May 2021 thank you Dr. Stemmer thank you very much I am Moshe Mittelman from Tel Aviv let's meet again in episode number four you 